Take your Bibles, if you would, with me this evening and turn to Amos chapter 3. Last time we were together, we spent our time understanding what it means that the nation of Israel are a special people to the Lord. We trace this favor throughout both Old Testament and New Testament. Didn't get to get into future prophecy and the connections to Daniel and the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ and such, and I've taught that before. It will undoubtedly come up again uh, when we'll, we'll focus upon that more. And it will actually come up again in our Genesis series, for those of you that are here in our morning series, um, as we focus in on the covenants that are coming up in Genesis chapter 15 and following, uh, we'll be able to see more of the, the prophetic promises of God uh, regarding the people of Israel. And as we looked into that a, a couple of weeks ago, we traced this favor and it rested upon the understanding that God has not abandoned his people, the nation of Israel, but instead yet has a plan for the nation in which they will one day receive their Messiah and be brought into the promises. They cannot be given the promises of the kingdom. They cannot be given all of the promises of the covenants just yet. And the reason why they cannot be given the promises of those covenants is because they have not aligned themselves with the final condition to bring them into those covenants, which is that they receive their Messiah. Uh, the Messiah came, they rejected their Messiah, and God certainly cannot give them a new heart. He cannot give them a new spirit. He cannot uh, uh, um, change their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh. He cannot circumcise the foreskins of their heart. Any of those metaphors, none of it can happen if they don't accept their Messiah. And their Messiah came and they rejected their Messiah, which means God was put in a place where he could not bring the kingdom. He could not give them the promise just yet because they rejected the Messiah through whom the promises should come. But that day is coming when God will, in fact, finish that work. It's just going to have to come through a little bit more um, hardship for the nation of Israel, a lot more hardship, in fact, for the nation of Israel. And all of this was founded upon what we read in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. We'll read those verses again together as we get rolling again this evening. The Bible says in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Hear this word that the Lord hath spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So these two verses are a pronouncement of judgment. Therefore, God says in verse two, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Now, God says specifically that he's going to punish the nation for their iniquities. And we would expect this sin brings consequences. Sin always brings consequences. But it's this therefore that I'd like us to think about here for just a moment. It's this therefore that also indicates that what God had said previously about the nation being a special people is not just something that was stated as a fact, that you're special to me, but that statement of the peculiarity or the special nature of them as God's people was actually foundational 
It was a part of the reason why God was giving the pronouncement of judgment that he was giving. Now, I told you, uh, this was last Sunday morning in Sunday school. We had uh, talked a little bit about the nature of, of God judging his people. That was a question that came up a little bit out of the blue. And I said, well, I'm going to get into it a little bit today. And it's going to spoil a little bit of what I had to say to you a little later in Amos. Uh, tonight is that time. So if you were here in Sunday school a week ago, you got a little bit of a sneak preview of what we're talking about tonight. God tells his people here that his word is against them and he specifically mentions against not just the nation, the northern tribes of Israel, but against the whole family that was brought out of the land of Egypt, northern tribes of Israel, the southern tribes of Judah. And this is because of their special relationship with him. This becomes very clear as we continue. Verses three through six, Amos says this. Can two walk together except they be agreed? Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he has taken nothing? Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? Shall one take up a snare from the earth and have taken nothing at all? Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people be not afraid? Shall there be evil in a city and the Lord hath not done it? The Lord then asks some questions of the nation here through Amos. One which is profound in its simplicity, really all of which in a sense are profound in their simplicity. But the first one here is one that is very well known, one that has become perhaps the most well-known phrase in the book of Amos. Can two walk together except they be agreed? I mentioned it in my prayer this evening. There's a real element to this that draws out the concept of unity, that we desire to be a unified people, that my, I want to be unified with my wife, that we want to have unity in our relationships, because can two walk together except they be agreed? Yes, and that's a very, very good question, and there's a, a natural uh, statement of unity within that. It's applicable in many ways, but it is only as we continue reading with these other questions where we understand where God is going, actually going with this, because he's not necessarily stepping into a question of unity. This is not a statement of unity. I could preach a message on unity from this, and, and, and that, 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 that statement of unity or that, that context of unity would be valid biblically. Behold how good and how pleasant it is that brethren dwell together in unity, Psalm 133, verse 1 says. And so, yes, it's a, it's a doctrinal reality or it's a, a biblical reality that we desire to be a unified people. But Amos is not calling Israel to unity here. That's not the reason why he asked this question. And we see that as we continue. So the first question is, can two walk together except they be agreed? Now, see if you can follow from that question what that question has in common with all of these other questions that are being asked in verses 4, 5, and 6. And see if you can see the common thread between all of these questions that actually directs us to what God is doing by asking them. Well, verse 4 has the second and the third questions. Question number two. Will a lion... Roar in the forest when he has no prey? And then question three. Will a young lion cry out of his den if he's taken nothing? Will a lion roar? Will it, will it, will it cry? Will it give that sound of, as it were, victory if it hasn't brought anything in, if it hasn't killed anything? 
Verse 5 gives us questions 4 and 5. Can a bird fall in a snare upon the earth where no gin, that would be a trap, is for him? A bird is not going to get caught in a trap if there's no trap there. Question 5. Will one remove a trap from the earth before he has caught something in it? If there's a trap on the ground and nothing is caught in it, will you, will you take it up when, when it hasn't accomplished its purpose? Verse 6. Question six and seven. Will the people not be afraid when the trumpet of warning sounds? This would be the idea of the watchmen on the wall who are watching for enemies. And if that, that watchman sounds that trumpet, will, will the people not be afraid? And then the final question. Will there be evil in the city except the Lord has brought it about? This is not the idea of wickedness. Right? But this is a, a companion question that if evil, bad things, not wickedness, but bad things, that's the, the idea of evil in our, in our Bibles. If bad things come upon a city, if there is this, is it not because, the, does the Lord not know that? Is there not still um, the, the reality that the Lord is in control of such things? Now, did you catch the common thread to all of these questions, all seven of them? The common thread is that the answer to every one of them is no. No. Two cannot walk together in unity if they're not agreed. No. A lion will not roar in the forest if it has no prey. No. A young lion will not roar out of his den if he's taken nothing. No. A bird will not fall into a trap if the trap is not set. No. A person is not going to take up a trap if he hasn't caught anything yet. No. A people will absolutely be afraid when they hear the trumpet call. And no, when, when evil comes upon a city, God is absolutely in control. And what we find here then is that what God is actually emphasizing with this question, can two walk together except they be agreed, as well as the other six questions, is cause and effect. Cause and effect. You do not have an effect without a cause. Things do not happen spontaneously. Effects happen with a cause. I come into my house and I see that there is water on the floor. I do not believe that that water spontaneously appeared on the floor. I look at my children and I say, who spilled water on the floor? Well, Dad, how dare you accuse someone of spilling water? Well, there's water on the floor and it got there somehow. So I'm asking a reasonable question, right? Because of the idea of cause and effect. A natural order to things. One thing that precipitates another thing. And without the presence of the first thing, you don't have the second thing. Now, we are familiar with such cause and effect, both practically and biblically. Biblically, the book of James tells us, Ye have not, because ye ask not. Cause and effect. I don't have, because I haven't asked. Makes sense. Back when I was a child, I played in a rec league, soccer. And one thing that my coach always said to our team was, if you don't shoot, you can't score. Because, you know, we'd get near the goal and we'd be waiting for the perfect shot. And you're waiting and waiting and waiting for the perfect shot and the perfect shot never comes. And the coach would just sit us down and say, look, you might shoot and miss. We might shoot and there's someone in front of you. And maybe you won't score, but maybe you will. But I can guarantee you, if you don't shoot the ball, 
you will never score. Because cause and effect says, in order to score, the ball has to be sent toward the net. And we could walk through dozens of examples of this very idea. Maybe throughout your mind is lots of different cause and effect sort of things that you've dealt with with yourself, with your spouse, with your children, with life and, and, and circumstance. Maybe several cause and effects that you can think of in the Bible. We reap what we sow, right? And this is the idea that God is laying down in these verses in Amos. He's laying this idea of cause and effect down so that he can lead us to his application to all of these statements of cause and effect, to all of these statements of natural order. And we begin seeing that application in verses 7 and 8, where the Bible says this, Surely the Lord will do nothing, but he revealeth his secrets unto his servants, the prophets. The lion hath roared, who will not fear. The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy. Cause and effect. The natural order of things is that God will do nothing except he first tells people what he's going to do. God does not come out of left field. If something happens in the spirit realm, if something happens spiritually in our lives, we can know this, that it happened as a part of cause and effect. You will not be serving the Lord, doing what's right, uh, uh, loving the Lord with all your heart, humble and submissive, and all of a sudden have a whirlwind of terror just drop upon you from the Lord as if you were uh, a, a wicked person. Nor will you be a wicked person rebelling against the Lord and expect to see his tremendous blessings. Now, of course, we know we live in a world where the evil prosper and those sorts of things. And that's a little bit of a different idea as it relates to those things. But we're talking on a spiritual level here. God is a God of cause and effect. God will do nothing, he says here, except he first reveals it to his servants, the prophets. In other words, what Amos is attempting to do is he is attempting, he, remember, Amos has traveled from Judah, from Tekoa, up to the north. He was a herdman. He was not anyone special. And he gets up there and he begins to proclaim, thus saith the Lord. And as he's proclaiming this, perhaps he's not receiving a whole lot of interest in what he has to say. Maybe they're not particularly uh, um, uh, yielded. Maybe they're not listening. Maybe they're rolling their eyes. Maybe they're scorning him. Maybe they're mocking him. And he looks at them and he says this. God doesn't do anything except he first reveals it to his prophets. In other words... I'm here to tell you that God is about to do something. And God is not about to do something unless there's a reason, which means you have given God a reason to do something. And you should be listening because I'm here to tell you that because God is not going to do it until after he's told you. And he's going to tell you through me. And that's why I'm here. That's what Amos is saying here. Amos is speaking in the name of the Lord. The Lord is using this prophet to warn his people and the Lord wouldn't be warning his people if he wasn't prepared to judge them. So Amos says, the lion has roared. This calls all the way back to that Amos chapter one idea. The Lord will roar out of Zion. So this is the lion that has roared. And what does it mean if the lion has roared? It means he has his prey, Right? It means that it's time for judgment. And if the Lord has his prey and God does nothing except he first reveals it to his prophets, 
and Amos is standing before them saying, thus saith the Lord, then maybe Israel should start to fear a little bit. And that's the idea. So the essence of Amos' statement here is this. God has spoken. Amos is compelled to tell the nation that they're about to be judged. And they would do very well to regard this prophecy because God is not arbitrary or unjust in judgment. We'll talk more about that later. And when God speaks, he means business. Now, the content of this judgment is found in the remaining verses of Amos chapter 3. So we read this in verses 9 through 15. Publish in the places of Ashdod, at Ashdod, and in the pal- excuse me, palaces. Let's try that again. Publish in the palaces at Ashdod, and in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria, and behold the great tumults in the midst thereof, and the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, saith the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, An adversary there shall be even round about the land, And he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Hear ye and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord, the God of hosts. That in the day that I shall visit the transgressions of Israel upon him, I will also visit the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. And I will smite the winter house with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. So Amos cries out actually to Ashdod, which was the capital of Philistia. And he cries out to the palaces of Egypt as well. So the palaces in Ashdod and the palaces in Egypt. So he's crying out to the leaders of the people of these enemies of Israel. And he basically says, assemble in the mountains of Samaria. And you can watch the downfall of Israel. These enemies have fought against Israel. They have warred against Israel. But this time they're not going to have to fight to see Israel's downfall because the Lord is going to bring that downfall. They can just climb the mountains of Samaria. They can sit down and they can grab their popcorn and they can watch and they can watch Israel be torn apart by God. Yes, the people of Philistia, the people of Egypt, they too are evil people. But see, they're not God's people. They have not bound themselves by law to God's covenants. To this end, God's expectations upon Israel were much higher than that of Philistia or that of Egypt. So it is that God says he would send an adversary who would bring all of his strength against Israel and would spoil their palaces. This adversary would be, we know from history, the Assyrian nation who would destroy the land of Israel and take its people captives. And notice the somewhat graphic way that God describes what this destruction would look like in verse 12. Thus saith the Lord, as the shepherd taketh out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the children of Israel be taken out that dwell in Samaria in the the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. So God gives the picture of a shepherd and that shepherd is actually picking the pieces from a lot, uh, from, well, picking out from a lion the pieces or the scraps of a sheep. He has a leg here, a leg there, a piece of an ear. Those are the parts that the lion maybe didn't want, 
They didn't have a whole lot of usefulness on them. And that's all that's left of his sheep. A couple of legs and, an, and a piece of an ear. God says, so shall Israel be. He'll go to all of the places. In Samaria, in the corner of a bed. In Damascus, in a couch. And they will, be utterly, they will not be utterly destroyed, but they will be torn to pieces so that all that will be left of the nation of Israel will effectively be scraps. Now to this end, God testifies to the house of Jacob that in the day of this destruction, God would visit the altars of Bethel. Bethel, we have talked about before. We'll see it again next time we're together in Amos. Bethel was a place of false worship. It was actually where Jeroboam initially set up the golden calf cult in northern Israel. He put a golden calf in Bethel in the south of Israel, and he put a golden calf in Dan in the north of Israel. And so Bethel was a place of high spiritual significance, and God says that the horns of the altar in Bethel would be cut off, that the worship system of Israel would be destroyed, that the thing that they clung to, that the thing that they were convinced was a part of what God was pleased at them for, God was not pleased with them for that, for it was a perverted worship system. It was a subverted worship system, and it too would be destroyed. God then says he would destroy both the winter house and the summer house. And when we combine that with this picture of palaces, right? The palaces of Ashdod, the palaces of Egypt, watching as the palaces of Samaria are destroyed, we see once again an allusion to the wealthy being affected by this, not just the poor. And this is not necessarily the most common thing when it comes to various uh, conflicts and various wars. Usually you have the people that are in the innermost and they're wealthy and they have their palaces and they would, uh, as, as the enemy would come, it would be the, 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 the poor among them that would feel the biggest brunt of that push of the enemy. And then uh, even oftentimes if that enemy were to conquer, that enemy would come in and they would conquer the land but leave the kings, leave the wealthy in a vassal state of sorts where the wealthy would still be able to do their thing just under uh, subjection or under tribute to a greater king. But that was not going to happen here. Those that have the winter house and the summer house, the wealthy among them, the palaces and such, they would also be destroyed in this time of tremendous destruction. And that's the message of Amos 3. It's a message of cause and effect. It's a message of Amos saying, I'm not here arbitrarily. I didn't just come up to Israel for a vacation and decide I wanted to yell at you. God sent me here. And if God sent me here to say, thus saith the Lord, then you probably should listen because I'm not here by accident. And that's actually what we're going to think about in our time of application this evening. Two points that I'd like to think through as we think about application. And the first point is this. That God holds his people to a higher standard than those who are not his own. The first thing we contemplate is the lesson which is derived from that study two weeks ago that Israel was a special people to the Lord, combined with what the Lord then said he was going to do to Israel within the scope of this chapter. In the world of carnal human motivations, the idea that is kind of bantered about is this. The idea is that my friends get favors and my enemy gets the law, basically, right? 
That if you're my friend, then you can skirt the laws, you can skirt the rules, uh, you get all the favors. Uh, if you're my friend, then I'm just going to overlook your problems and I'm going to overlook your, 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 your issues. We see that a lot in our government today. Depending on whichever side is in power, all of their friends can do whatever they want with impunity and all of their enemies uh, can't do anything without having uh, uh, a microscope put upon their affairs. And that's very human. But God doesn't work that way. With God, things are a bit different. When we step into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, it comes with numerous spiritual advantages. In the days of Israel, that was, of course, prior to Christ, they stepped into a relationship with God through the Law and the Prophets. By faith, of course, as it always has been. And through that law and that prophets, there was physical protection, physical blessing, physical prosperity. That was the thing, the blessing that came with a relationship with God that was not realized in the pagan nations that were around them as it relates to God's blessing. Now, for the church, we are given not the law and the prophets. So Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and the prophets. We are given the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And through that comes many precious promises, breaking the chains of sin, teaching us all things, empowering us through the bearing of the fruit of the Spirit unto life and ministry and godliness. God certainly favors His own. We talked this morning about this idea from 1 Corinthians 6. Actually rooted it in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3. That the carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. That God favors his people with spiritual understanding in a way the carnal man, the unbelieving man, simply cannot know. But this does not imply that God does not hold his own people accountable. Much to the contrary, the favor that God shows also heightens the accountability that rests upon God's people. Now, as we sit here this evening, most of the people in this room have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have made that profession of faith, and you have uh, followed that profession with believers' baptism, and you stand firm upon this reality that you are among God's people. You are a part of the church of the living God, and that comes with these blessed favors that are rooted in the Spirit of God who indwells us, but it also comes with expectations. And that's what we learned from Amos this evening. So the Lord warns us in Luke chapter 12. And I'm going to read quite a chunk of scripture here, verses 35 to 48. Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says this in Luke 12. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding. That when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you, that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet, and will come forth and serve them. And if he shall come in the second watch, or come in the third watch and find them, find them so, excuse me, blessed are those servants. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, oops, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. 
But ye there, uh, be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh at an hour when ye think not. Then Peter said unto him, that's Peter speaking to Jesus, Speakest thou this parable unto us, or even to all? And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward, whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household, to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall so find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and to drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. So Jesus gives a warning here, and he gives this warning to his servants. And it's a blessing upon those of his servants who are found watching, who are found doing, when the master returns. He gives the idea of a master who has gone to a wedding, and he comes at a time that his servants do not know, and he will knock at that door, and he expects that door to be opened. And there's a fascinating statement here that is made as it relates to that door being opened. He said that for those servants who are ready when the master comes, who, who's, who open the door when the master arrives, he says this in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord when he cometh shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. Do you hear what that just said? That when the master arrives and the servants are ready and they open the door and the house is tended to and they are girt, that the master will come and the master will gird himself and he will make them, the servants, to sit down to meet and he, the master, will serve them. What a fascinating promise. But to the unfaithful servant who uses his position of favor with his Lord to waste his time, to waste his energy, that servant, the Bible says, will be cut asunder and appointed a portion with the unbelievers. Now, this is not speaking of losing one's salvation. Notice it does not say he is made an unbeliever. And the Bible tells us that all who believe are saved. But it says he will be given a portion, his portion with the unbelievers. Speaking most certainly of having the same rewards to show for their life as the unbeliever would have. So that a person might be able to, as 1 Corinthians 3 says, be saved yet so as by fire. 
that the fire of God's judgment will fall upon the works that have been done in this life and that man who is the unfaithful servant will have everything that he's done, all of his efforts, all of his thoughts, all of his intentions burned up. He will be saved and yet he will be saved to ha- but have nothing to show for it in the same manner that an unbeliever will have nothing to show, only that unbeliever will be damned. A loss of reward so great that he has nothing but himself to show for his season of supposed service. But he was not serving his master. Instead, he was only serving himself. No reward, no blessing. And that because, as Jesus says in verse 48, unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And this is the idea, Christian. You have been given much. You have been saved from much. The Lord has redeemed you from much. And that has not happened so that you can kick back and now do whatever you want. God giving you that great get out of hell free card. Uh Uh-uh. To whom much is given, Christian, much is required. And take this to heart, Christian, because you have been given much. Just as Israel in her day had been given much. And that should be a great blessing. But if we reject the responsibility of this relationship, if we reject the responsibility of this blessing, God will not fail to hold us accountable. And because our advantages were great, so much greater will be the consequences should we choose to reject those blessings. There's so many more passages that I would love to go to if we had time. We could go to 2 Corinthians and think through this. We could go to 1 Corinthians and think through this. We could go to Hebrews and think through this. But I want to only go to one more. And again, we talked about this a little bit last week in Sunday school. And that one more, perhaps the clearest expression of this principle in the Bible found in 1 Peter chapter 4. And in verses 14 through 19 of 1 Peter 4, Peter says this, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Glorify God for that suffering because you are suffered for, you're, you're suffering for righteousness rather than for unrighteousness. For the time is come, verse 17 says, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. We know full well that not all of the suffering among God's people is God's judgment. And when, as Peter writes here, God's people suffer according to the will of God, doing right before God and suffer for doing right, holding fast to the faith, we do so committing the keeping of our souls to God and well-doing, knowing our future reward, and we receive the recompense of that reward in the life that is to come in that gold, silver, and precious stones. But Peter says, let none of us suffer 
as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer, as a busybody in men's matters. Let none of us live out the consequences that come upon the man who is an evil man. Let it not be once named among us as believers. When we live in open disregard for the God whom, with whom we have this relationship, when we seek to live in the favor of God while simultaneously scorning the character of God, well, as Hebrews 10 tells us, there remains nothing but a certain fearful looking for, of ju- but of judgment and fiery indignation that shall devour the adversaries because the Lord shall judge his people. And this judgment must, Peter tells us, begin at the house of God. And this is that first point. God holds his people to a higher standard than he holds those who are not his own. And this is that first lesson that God is trying to tell Israel through Amos. That while Israel is saying, no, we're not going to be judged, we're not going to be destroyed, God would not allow that to happen to his people. We are the people of the covenant, we are the people of Sinai, we are the people who have these promises, and God will keep his promises with us. Well, yes, he will, and if you read Deuteronomy, you know that not all of those promises are promises of blessing. But in fact, there's also promises that judgment must be upon God's people, that judgment will begin at the house of God. Point number two, as we close, not only does God hold his own people to a higher standard than those who are not his own, but second, God's chastening is never arbitrary nor anticipated. A lion does not roar if it does not have prey. Two cannot walk together except they are agreed. And God does not arbitrarily lay down consequences. Choices have consequences. Cause and effect. God is not an arbitrary God. When God told the nation that he was going to roar out of Zion in chapter 1, This was not an arbitrary thing. God did not just appear one day and said, I've decided to be grumpy with you, Israel. It's your time. You haven't had any hardships for a while. And now it's simply time for you to be destroyed. No. This was the natural result of the actions that his people had committed against him. God does not arbitrarily bring chastening. God does not arbitrarily bring judgment, nor does God arbitrarily bring blessing. He works in consistency with his character and his promises and his purposes so that when we are deciding what course of action we should take for the manner in which we live our lives before God, while the manner of God's choices of judgment and of mercy and of grace may remain to us unknown, we may not necessarily always see exactly what God is doing. We may not understand how God's hand of chastening, how God's hand of discipline, how God's hand of bringing trials into our lives in order to grow us and stretch us is anything. Uh, we, we may not understand exactly what God is doing at any given time, but we know exactly where they come from and why they exist. We know that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, right? And so if you are being resisted by God, you know why. It's not a mystery. God is not arbitrary. We know that God chastens his children. So if you are under chastening, you know why. Because God loves you. It's not arbitrary. He is growing you. He is stretching you. He is asking more of you. He is seeking to teach you things. We know that sin has consequences. So if you're living in the consequences of your sin, don't be surprised. If you harden yourself in pride, if you are lying, if you are cheating, if you are stealing, if you are murmuring, if you are complaining... 
if you are in resentment, if you are in bitterness, if uh, you are, are living out these uh, lack of virtue, these things in your life, if you have great anger or wrath and you're living out that anger, that wrath, these are not arbitrary things. These things come with consequences and don't expect to be able to do them without the consequences that come with them. Because we know that we reap what we sow. This is God's law. And the first consistency both of character or this consistency of character and of operation means two things. First, we need not fear God in the sense of we need not fear an arbitrary God. We need not fear that God in some fit of temper or because he didn't get enough sleep last night or because he stubbed his toe or something. We need not fear that God is going to level unjust suffering or judgment upon us because he's just grumpy that day. That's something that your parents might do from time to time, that they've had a really bad day or a really bad week, and it's at the end of it, and you do something uh, that is marginally out of uh, line with what is expected, and there is a, 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 um, there's an out-of-character and, and an outsized response to such things. And you say, wow, that's not normal, nor is that just. Well, yeah, that's because your parents are having a bad day. That happens with authorities. That happens with parents. That happens with, with uh, uh, leaders, human leaders. But God is not arbitrary. And so first, we have this confidence that says that God is not overreacting, that God is not just going to have a bad day. But second... It should also bring us to a holy fear of God. In a sense that if I choose, in spite of God's character, in spite of God's promises, in spite of God's blessings, to deny him his rightful position in my life and in my priorities, I know full well how God will react. And I should not be surprised when he responds the way he's promised to respond. If my... if if. If I, as God's child, are stepping outside the bounds of God's will, if I am rebelling against God, God is going to faithfully chasten me back to himself. I should not be surprised when I am receiving God's chastening if I am not walking according to his word. I should not be surprised that I'm experiencing God's chastening if I am in rebellion. Don't be surprised. It is what is going to happen if God loves you and you're rebelling against him. It should compel me to say, if I don't want the results of rebellion, then I shouldn't live in rebellion. And may our actions and obedience to God reflect this understanding, reflect this perspective. Not just as it relates to what God has told the nation of Israel in Amos chapter 3, but as he tells the special people of this day that he, has special, uh, that he is going to bring special judgment upon them because, because they are his special people. He says, you are a special people unto me, therefore I'm about to judge you. Let us remember that we too are a special people unto the Lord and that our, our Savior has a vested interest in our well-doing. Yes, we rest under grace by which the blood of Jesus Christ has delivered us from the power and the presence and someday even, uh, well, someday the presence, the power right now and the penalty of our sins. But of course, this grace does not free us from the expectation of obedience. But rather, it frees us from the darkness of our own hearts unto the end that we might obey as we ought. 
And it's not just that we ought, but it is that we are expected to. Because God holds his people, his people whom he has given his spirit and empowered to do right. He holds us to a standard of expectation that we would do right. And may we live up to those expectations as Christ has empowered us this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.